This is the Dialogue Journal podcast series. Hello, and welcome to another Dialogue podcast. This time we're pleased to feature Professor Lori Maffley Kitt, one of the co-editors, along with Reed Nielsen, of a collection of essays about Mormonism in the Pacific, titled Proclamation to the People, 19th Century Mormonism and the Pacific Basin Frontier. It was published by the University of Utah Press. I'm your host, Morris Thurston, chair of the Dialogue Board of Directors. Our podcast today was originally presented as a session of the Miller-Eccles Study Group at our home in Orange County, California. If you enjoy this and other Dialogue podcasts, we hope you'll consider subscribing and contributing to Dialogue so that we may continue to bring you the best in scholarship by and about Mormons. Let me briefly introduce Laurie Maffley-Kipp. She received her B.A. from Amherst College in English and Religion and completed a Ph.D. in American History at Yale. She spent 24 years at the University of North Carolina as a professor of religious studies and served as department chair for five of those years. Earlier this year, she was appointed as a distinguished university professor in the Danforth Center on Religion and Politics at Washington University in St. Louis. Interestingly, although she is not herself a Mormon, Lori taught a course on Mormonism for many years at UNC and is scheduled to continue teaching that subject at Washington St. Louis. In addition to many books and papers on non-LDS topics, Laurie has produced some outstanding scholarship concerning Mormon matters. She wrote the introduction, for example, to the Penguin Classics edition of the Book of Mormon, and is currently working on a survey of Mormonism in American life. During the Mitt Romney presidential campaign, a time when many evangelical Christian leaders were taking shots at Mormons for being non-Christian, Laurie wrote an article for the Christian Century magazine taking a look at the beliefs, history, and culture of Mormonism. It was so unusually even-handed that the LDS newsroom produced a special article commending her work, saying that she had, quote, produced an informed, rigorous, and non-Mormon analysis with insights that go well beyond the surface, end quote. Tonight, Lori will share her insights on 19th century Mormonism in the Pacific. Thank you, Morris. Thanks so much. It's um, such a great pleasure to be here. Um, I hope we'll have lots of time for conversation. I would love to hear from all of you. Thank you, especially to Morris and Dawn, for opening your home and for that beautiful moon you provided tonight. I don't know if anyone saw the gorgeous moon. Uh, yeah, it was ab- absolutely lovely. Particularly, it's good to see Ralph here, whose son Reed um, was one of my beloved graduate students at UNC and is now doing wonderful things for the church. So this feels sort of like a homecoming in in certain ways, and I appreciate being here. Morris had asked me to talk. He said it's better to be informal (laughs) and not to read something from a script. I do have a few notes, but um, I really want to talk to you more about my work on um, Mormonism in the in the Pacific world. This is where I started in Mormon studies and Mormon history. And this, it was helpful as I was sort of pulling the pieces together for, for this talk to think back on sort of the, the various 
the things I've done and how they all fit into some kind of larger picture. So it was a good exercise for me to try to, you know, sort of to remember where this started and where I've come from. But let me um, just give you a little bit of background about that first, and then I want to talk about why the Pacific and why Mormonism in the Pacific. I um, was, in my graduate training, I was trained in American history. I was trained, um, I, I hit Yale at a time when the New Western history was uh, sort of all the rage. The New Western history are, were a group of um, exciting young historians of the American West, um, none of whom cared about religion at all, <laughs> I'll say. The, one, the course, uh, a couple of the courses I sat in on that were being taught, surveys of the American West, there was always one day on religion, the Mormons. That was it. And this bothered me for lots of reasons, um, not, because I, not just because I th thought it sold short the Mormon experience, but that it didn't talk about religion in any other context. So it just sort of plopped them down in the middle of Utah and went on to you know, the environment and economics and other things. And so in my own work, I, uh, in my dissertation work, I wrote about uh, evangelical missionaries in California during the gold rush. I've always been fascinated by missionaries for reasons I'll talk about in a minute. But I didn't talk about Mormons. There were Mormons during the gold rush in California. I didn't talk about them at that point. And I, I think I always sort of rebelled against talking about the Mormons because I thought that's all that Western historians ever talk about when they talk, <laughs> talk about religion as the Mormons. So I was determined not to talk about the Mormons. Well, this caught up with me sometime in 19, I guess it was 1999, when I was asked to give the Tanner Lecture at the Mormon History Association meeting. But it, for those of you who don't know about, some of you have probably heard the Tanner Lectures, but the Tanner Lecture is a really, I, I think, a, an ingenious idea. The idea is to bring in someone who has not done work on Mormonism, but whose scholarly work somehow relates to an allied field in some way, whether it's women's history or geography or to find some way to get that person to talk about Mormonism in the context of their own work. And in doing that, they provide resources to send you out to Utah to do work in the church archives if you want to go and um, to meet with scholars in Utah. So I, I decide, okay, the time has come. I'm going to, I'm going to learn about the Mormons myself and went out to do to work in the church archives and, and made some actually lasting, long lasting friendships with faculty at BYU in the process. And I also decided to teach a course because there was nothing that scared me more than standing up in front of a whole room full of Mormons and feeling like a fool because I'd made some terrible mistake. <laughs> and I thought the best way to really learn a subject is to be able is to teach it. And so I thought this would be a great learning experience for me. So the semester before I gave this lecture, I taught, I taught for the first time this seminar on Mormonism that Morris was talking about, to non, mostly to non-Mormon students. There was one lovely, patient, generous LDS student in the class who helped me along at various points. But most of the students were evangelicals. Most of them had grown up in North Carolina, as most of the UNC students have. And most of them were Baptists or Methodists and had, had grown up learning through movies or Sunday school or somewhere that Mormons were a dangerous cult and that they ought to be very scared. But most of them had also, in high school or somewhere along the way, met someone, a friend, a boyfriend of a friend, the sister's friend, who was Mormon and who was really nice. And they couldn't figure out a way to make sense of these things. And so they were taking this course 
as a way to figure this out, what, what the truth was of this tradition. And it was a great starting point for them because they then were able to, they got curious about it, they enjoyed meeting with uh, LDS folks that I brought into class. I brought in the, you know, the bishop from the local ward. I brought in um, returned missionaries, panels of students, panels of women, and really um, just got them to meet a lot of people who they could talk to about this tradition. So that was a fabulous experience, and it ended up being really the best teaching experience of my life. So now I'm about, about to start out on that at WashU in my new job teaching a course on Mormonism, so stay tuned for how that will go. In the process of doing this, though, um, the, the, the talk I ended up writing and the research I ended up doing for the Tanner Lecture was about missionaries, because that's what I knew to talk about. I, and of course, when I went to the church archives and I was faced with, oh my gosh, I can do anything I want to, where do you start? Uh, I was immediately drawn to missionaries. Now, why missionaries? I, I tend to find that you learn the most about a religious tradition from working around the margins, whether those are geographical margins or other kinds of margins, that, it, that can reveal a lot about the center of a tradition by looking at what happens around the edges. Um, because people on the edges, whether they be, you know, again, geographically isolated from uh, the center, from Utah in this case, or you know, theologically sort of on the margins, tend to constantly face the question of what's essential and what is peripheral in this religion? What are the things that I will not give up? And what are the things that are cultural or sort of are uh, sort of incidental to my, my faith? And I had found this in my previous work on, Californ- on Protestant missionaries in California. These are missionaries who follow the miners out west and who get there with nothing, you know, they have no resources, they're trying to build churches in little mining camps and muddy, you know, muddy situations, their wives are complaining because their skirt, long skirts are dragging through the mud around town, and what do they do? They buy bells for their churches. They buy bells, they have bells imported from New England, and I thought, what, you know, why would you spend your money on bells? What is it? And I had to really wrestle with this. Why are certain, why do they see certain things as so essential? And I, what I finally decided in that case it was that, that what the bells helped them to do was to mark sacred time in certain kinds of ways. If you had the bells telling people when to come to church, you had some, uh, some kind of order imposed on the society that wasn't there before. So it strikes me that you can find out a lot of things by working around the edges, and um, I wanted to do the same thing with Mormon missionaries. Um, to figure out what they were concerned about, where the tensions were with their relationships back in Utah, what the theological sort of, or the, the questions of belief they're struggling with. So, several things sort of struck me just to, to you know, what surprised me when I first got to the, 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 mission, the Mormon missionaries. The first thing that really struck me, and we talked about this at, actually at dinner, someone asked me this question, the first thing that struck me was how important the Pacific Basin was for Joseph Smith. And it doesn't make sense on the face of it when you first look at it. Why in the world, in 1843, does Joseph Smith Jr. send missionaries out to Hawaii or to the South Pacific Islands when there is so much going on in Illinois and right there in the U.S.? I mean, obviously, there are missionaries going to England. By then, there's a very successful you know, mission going on there. It, 
it wasn't as likely to be as successful in the South Pacific. So you have to ask, well, why there? Why, what's important about that? This is also much earlier than most Protestants are even thinking about the South Pacific. You know, Protestant missionaries, if anyone's read James, James Missionary, you know the, the, that the ministers were arriving in Hawaii in about 1820. Other than Hawaii, though, they were not going to down to sort of the, the, the Tahitian, so French Polynesia in that era. And that's the, those are the places where Mormon missionaries start to show up at a really early point. So I had to figure out sort of how to make sense of that, how to figure out you know, what, what was Joseph Smith thinking about. Um, and a piece of it, I'll, get, I'll come back to this in a little while, but a piece of it is I think has to do with, North, with Southern California because part of the, the original idea of the state of Deseret, that's a little, a little later on, was of course to have a corridor to the Pacific, to have, and, and back in the 1840s, if you wanted to travel anywhere very efficiently, you wanted to go by boat, if you could. You did not want to be trekking overland through all of those states that had treated you so badly the first time around. You're not going to go back east. You want to figure out a means of transport out toward the Pacific. So the Pacific world, and once you get to the West Coast, once you get to San Bernardino, the Pacific world opens up before you. And I think what it lent for... Joseph Smith Jr., who of course himself never saw, never saw this area, but what it lent to him was sort of a vision of a, a world in the Pacific, that reinforced, of course, the vision of in, in the Book of Mormon of the importance of the Western Hemisphere. Right. So it's sort of like the scriptures are coming together with this strategic interest in building Zion. It's both a practical and a theological issue of you know how can we make this place work. And how can we fulfill the kind of mission that we feel called to fulfill? So, you know, making sense of all this uh, took me a while. So, Joseph Smith sends these missionaries to French Polynesia in 1843. French Polynesia, though, is not on the way to anywhere. <laughs> really, I mean, <laughs> Hawaii, you can sort of understand. If you know anything about sailing in the 19th century, I had to learn this when I was working on my dissertation, you know, that um, boats at that point would come from the East Coast miners coming from the east coast went around the horn or went across the isthmus of Panama but if they went around the horn they couldn't come straight up the coast because of the winds the prevailing winds prevent you from moving straight up to the west coast they go to Hawaii you have to go to Hawaii and then you can sort of shoot with the prevailing winds you can shoot straight across to California so Hawaii becomes this extremely important place for people from all over the world to meet up at a very early point because that's the most the easiest way to get to California, and later to get to sort of places farther north from there. So there's all kinds of of reasons why the Pacific becomes important for uh, sort of the U.S. more generally, but that doesn't explain French Polynesia <laughs> at all. And I think the only way to explain it is to understand this larger Pacific world vision, sort of the Book of Mormon peoples in the Western Hemisphere, the unfolding of history in the Western Hemisphere as a counterpart to what was going on in, sort of in, in the eastern parts of the world. The other really inter- interesting fact that I, uh, that I was fascinated by was that the first temple built, not just the first temple outside the continental United States, which I think is what the L- LDS.org says. It says that, that the, the, Hawaiian, the, the temple in Hawaii is the first temple built outside the continental United States. 
It's also the first temple built outside of Utah. And there's not any other temple anywhere in the United States. And they go and build a temple in Hawaii. And again, you're struck by what that says about the way they're thinking of the world and the sort of the future of this society that's unfolding. So I knew that there was an important story to, to understand here. I was also really interested that knowing something about missionary, Protestant missionary history, there are lots of people that study this. They're called missiologists. I don't know. I don't think Mormons use that term missiology, but Protestants use that term a lot. And I was stunned by, and in fact, Reed was the one that had, I had this conversation with Reed, where we were marveling about the fact that there has never been a study done that that talks about pro, pro, predominantly Protestant missionaries, but that includes Mormons in any kind of comparative way. They're never put on the same page at the same time. Protestants who study you know, missiology act as though there were no Mormon missionaries. Does yeah. missiology in, in imply Messiah? Is no, it's mis, it, M-I-S-S-I-O-L-O-G-Y. So it's mis, this, the knowledge of or the study of missions. Okay. And theories, it, 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 I think, is tied more into theories of missions. So, you know, the reasons, sort of the, the, the theological reasons why you go do missions. But they don't, it, it's as though the Mormons don't exist. And, of course, today there are many more Mormon missionaries than any other single denomination is managing to field out there. And, of course, as you know, the numbers have only gone up in the last couple of years since the, the ages for women are, have changed. So it seemed important to me to, to try to compare these two experiences and to figure out how uh, sort of the differences between the way Protestants are thinking about missions and the way Mormons are thinking about missions. And one of the first things I noticed is that Protestant missionaries coming from the United States in the early years often came sort of as governmental agents, and I don't mean that to sound like they were spies. I don't <laughs> mean it with that sense of paranoia about it. But they came, they came as church representatives, but they often came with the goal of gaining information that would be useful as Protestants settled, for instance, in Hawaii. So, by the way, as long as you're collecting information about Hawaii, could you just send us back a little information about, you know, the land or the labor situation or what crops might work well there. So there were very practical state-building reasons, government-building reasons behind um, Protestant intents. And as a result, Protestant missionaries were often seen by Native peoples as being agents of the U.S. government or as aligned with the U.S. government. Mormons in the 19th century, today that might be true about Mormons too. There, I've heard stories about people in South America thinking that Mormon missionaries were CIA agents because they dressed in the, you know, they had such, such characteristic, sort of uh, easily recognizable dress. And, and, they were, and they were from the U.S. <laughs> right, but in the 19th century, they were not, I mean, they were almost anti, anti-U.S. government in a sense, and the message that they were bringing with them was about their own persecution at the hands of the U.S. Mormons also had a very different aim when it came to the natives. They were their ultimate goal was to gather them back to Utah, not to figure out how to take their land and settle, you know, sort of settle and, and occupy their space, but to gather them into a community. So I was really struck by sort of all of these um, parallels, but slight differences between Protestants and Mormons. So what did I uh, what did I find out? One of the interesting, most interesting things for me about um, 
both Protestant and Mormon missionaries is the extent to which being far away from headquarters, wherever the headquarters, for most Protestants it's on the East Coast in New York or Philadelphia, for uh, Mormons at this point it's in Utah, being far away from headquarters has some drawbacks, but it has some advantages. And maybe being California Mormons, you know, you know about this too. But it was a lot harder back then to communicate if you wanted to communicate with your superiors back in Utah. In fact, it, it usually took months to get a letter back and forth. It was harder to get supplies. It was almost impossible to get funding. And Mormon mission, early missionaries were not funded for the most part. It was really hard to get books. People think that these folks were traveling around with the Book of Mormon, but in fact, what I discovered is that they, for a lot of years, they didn't have the Book of Mormon in the translations they needed, so they had to talk about the Book of Mormon, or they show their one copy that they had of the Book of Mormon, but it was not something that they were passing out to folks because they couldn't get enough copies of it at the time. But that distance also gave them sort of a freedom to experiment, to be entrepreneurial, to improvise. Um, and depending on your perspective, this could be a good or a bad thing. The missions in Hawaii, and actually even some communities in California, became known as sort of more heterodox Mormon communities, a little, on the fr- little fringy <laughs> out there, either seen as dangerous or needing to be kept sort of in line somehow. Now, the interesting thing is, I mean, Mormon missionaries overall in the Pacific are a really small, sort of tiny slice of Mormon missions in the 19th century. I think it's, Reed ran the numbers on this for me. I think it's about 7% of the labor force among 19th century Mormon missionaries was in the Pacific. 40% is in Europe. A little over 50% is in the United States itself. So we're talking small numbers, but that's, that very tininess actually gave them some independence. So you, you do see stories of missionaries who start out going to Hawaii. Well, then they say, well, you know, I'm not finding the field I really want to cultivate here. I think I'm going to head down to French Polynesia because I've heard that there are a lot of populations down there that need their souls, that need to hear this message. So there was the, that kind of freedom. Now, you didn't wait six months to get word back from Salt Lake City about whether that was okay. You just hopped on the next boat and went. So there's sort of a freedom that that kind of distance gives you, as well as sort of the restrictions that come along with it. The other piece, of course, that, that both Mormon and Protestant missionaries are dealing with in the Pacific are questions of racial and cultural difference. You know, what do you do with... And this is why, for me, um, why it ties into other work I've done in Af- things African-American. I'm really interested in what happens when uh, sort of people are trying to wrestle with reconciling their views of Christian equality with ba- sort of the most basic day-to-day differences that they find around them. So how do, how do Christians do this? How do Mormons do this? And what I found is that both Mormons and Protestants came up with different kinds of explanations for difference, in the, you know, just to explain why why God made differences in the first place, but then their own they come up with their own sort of makeshift remedies for how how it is we're still going to become one Christian community here, um, despite those differences. So for Mormons, I've already alluded to this that the idea, the concept of the Pacific Islanders, as either some people earlier talked about them as part of the Lamanite community, but as one of the Book of Mormon peoples became really important. 
um, both for their own, I think for the missionaries' understanding of what they were doing there. They were helping these Book of Mormon peoples, but also um, for the experience of Native peoples in the, as they understood themselves. <coughs> so missionaries would come and literally say things like, here, I have a book written by your people, or written about your people that, to give to you. This is a gift about you. This book is about you. It's a very powerful kind of statement to make um, to sort of people you're talking with. At the same time, they're sort of wrestling with, on the one hand, even if you see, okay, we're all part of the Book of Mormon, <laughs> we, you know, or we're, we're all part of these sacred peoples, you're still faced with these very day-to-day problems. And I, you see this both among Mormons and Protestants, I think more among the Protestants, who, Protestants don't have the Book of Mormon, obviously, to, to wrestle with, but they do have some idea of spiritual equality. Everyone is equal before God, but they, their idea was sort of that these native peoples are probably going to die out, ultimately, that civilization will come in and sort of spread itself. And so they wanted to help these people, these you know, native peoples, but um, they didn't worry too much about sort of forming you know, these long-lasting communities. But they're still faced with how do you deal on a day-to-day basis here with these folks. And sort of just one example, Protestant missionaries know that they're supposed to love Native people and treat them as their spiritual equals. But what happens, and this happened in Hawaii, what happens when you have teenage daughters? You're a missionary and you have teenage daughters. Do you want them going to church alongside Native teenage boys? The answer in the 19th century is no, for all kinds of reasons. It's about race, it's about culture, it's about not wanting your daughter to end up staying there because you're going to go back to the United States. They didn't even want them talking to the teenage boys. In fact, um, a, a number of missionaries, there are accounts of missionaries who would not let their children learn the native languages because they didn't want them mixing with the native kids. And in fact, one case where there's a, there's a teenage daughter begging her mother to let her stay home from church because her father, the minister, is preaching at the church in the native tongue and she doesn't know what he's saying because she's never learned the language. She said, don't make me go to church. You know? So it leads to all these kind of crazy uh, decisions that people have to make about how on a day-to-day basis you live with sort of these differences. And the Protestants generally, as opposed to the Mormons, the Protestants generally keep their distance from Native peoples. They build separate housing. They don't eat the same foods. There are lots of... Um, by the late 19th century, lots of uh, Protestant missionaries who are shipping in canned goods from the United States to eat rather than eating native foods. And they send their children back to the United States to be educated when they are sort of when they hit puberty. So that gets rid of the problem of sort of mixing. Right. Yes? I'm Protestants. Which, ch- which churches are Well, you? I'm generalizing about this. I mean, it's, it's at this point in the South Pacific and, and Hawaii, mostly Congregationalists, Methodists, Baptists, a few Episcopalians. And are you talking about like the 1950s or are you talking about 18, the 1800s? 1850s. This is all 19th century I'm talking okay. about. Yeah, yeah. We're not going to get out of the 19th century tonight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so this is the early missionary years. This, this is sort of what these first missions are like. Now, Mormons, what, the interesting thing that, that happens that, that makes the Mormons different is that Mormons can't afford not to live with the natives. 
right? Because they don't have any money. I and mean, Protestants don't have a lot of money, but they tend to be m more elite, trained ministry. They're getting supported by their denominations back home. The Mormons just get sent out there with nothing. And so you have these, they're, they're dirt poor, they, can't, they're, they have to live with native peoples. They don't know the language, so they're having to be taught the language by native peoples just to get along. So from the perspective of native peoples that we can, as, as far as I can gather, they seem more approachable. They seem more on, sort of on their level. They're not putting themselves in some way above, above the, the common folk and less like an occupying force that's sort of coming in to sort of take over. So that's sort of a, a basic view of sort of the, the, the comparison of, of Protestants and Mormons. And it begins, I think, to explain why Mormons evangelize in the Pacific so early because of this sort of vision of the Pacific world. It strikes me, too, that perhaps a difference, you mentioned that not having the young people mix, yeah. I know at that, yeah. at that period of time, probably the majority of Mormon missionaries were older, but from my own research, it's also clear that there are a number of 20-year-olds that are going out even then, uh, 20 yeah. to 30-year-old types, and right. they're mixing directly with the youth and maybe relating a little better to, with the youth. They are. There's, there's, in fact, one, I can't remember his name now, <coughs> in French Polynesia uh, in the 1840s who... I have this report from a, a, the wife of another missionary, um, this one missionary who goes, as they put it back then, goes native. He marries, he marries a native woman. And this is, what's surprising is that for the Protestants, this would be a scandal, I think. They would consider this really uh, crossing lines that ought not to be crossed. She kind of laughs about it. <laughs> she's, not, she's not that worried about it. She sort of presents it as an interesting anecdote. He's, and they're both going to church now. It's okay. You know? um, so that, to me, is a really powerful statement about the differences here in the way that they are seeing Native peoples and relating to them. Now, this is not to say, I, I just, this is not to say that the Mormons you know, are good people and the Protestants are bad people by any means. I think, in large part, the Mormons are doing this because it's necessity. They sort of, because of their age, because of their uh, sort of poverty, that, that's, they're out there and they have to sort of cope with it. So um, I'm not trying to make them out to be the sort of the great um, heroes of, of the missionary cause by any means. Yeah. Are the Protestant missionaries credentialed? Are they? Yes. Yeah, that's another thing I'll get to in a minute. They are trained. They are ordained. Um, have gone through school and so are on, yeah, on a socioeconomic di a different kind of level from most of the most of the um, Mormons yes can you put a date on when um, the idea that the Polynesians or Pacific Islanders were Lamanites uh, when that began yeah and, uh, people have uh, I, I saw something about that in um, the diary of Addison Pratt's wife um, in the 1840s some people have, have dated it to 1851, George Q. Cannon in, 18, in the 1850s. I don't know, 1851, maybe? Um, it's sometime around there, the first time that idea seems to come up. So it's not later than 1850 or 51? No. Okay. No, it's fairly early. It doesn't become sort of a widespread notion until later, well, but, the, but the missionaries certainly started talking about it. Contiki and all that. Right. They all drifted there from South America. So. Right. Right. Yeah, no, it's a, it's, 
it's 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 become more of a predominant sort of way of thinking about about South Pacific peoples. Well, some of their traditions are that they came from the direction of South America. Some of the traditions mm-hmm. of the islands. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and there have been, I mean, other kinds of studies that show that those the boats used by a lot of Pacific Island peoples were perfectly capable of, you know, I mean, not just Contiki, but other kinds of studies that you know that perfectly capable of of getting people hundreds. And not only that, they were very good mariners. Center. Yeah. They could use the stars for navigation. Yeah. Yeah. So it makes it does make a whole lot of sense. Okay, so let me talk about Parley Pratt. Parley Pratt is um, one of the first. Uh, I wouldn't even call him a missionary. He doesn't get very far in his mission in the Pacific. He is sort of sent off to the Pacific, but he is the one who. Um, in fact, the the book that that Reed and I uh, wrote together is titled after Parley Pratt's pamphlet that he wanted to bring to the Pacific peoples, the proclamation to the people, the people meaning the people of the coasts and islands of the Pacific. So this is a a pamphlet that is geared specifically for these people. And I think uh, you can read it online. It's really easy to find. And it gives you some sense of how Pratt and I think other church leaders at this point were thinking about the importance of the Pacific. He, in that document, he has sort of different sections addressed to different people. So there's a whole section to Christians, other Christians, and why they ought to believe in the restored gospel. Um, He has a section to Buddhists and Hindus saying, give up your gods. (laughs) Basically, they're no good. Here's the right path. He has a a longer section to the Jews, which I think is actually interesting that he would sort of put that in. I'm not sure he expected to find any Jews in the Pacific um, but um, he, he includes them in the document, which again lends you the sense that he's thinking Bible, he's thinking about Book of Mormon peoples, he's thinking about the tribes of Israel in this. That these are the important people you have to include in this story. Then he has a whole section to Native Americans. Meaning, well, what does he mean by that? That's a good question he, <laughs> that I ask myself. He, because he called, he says, to the red man. I assume there he's talking about Native Americans from from North America, um, but I don't think he knew who else you know was out there either. So so those are the sort of categories he has, and he gives them all specific information about what the restoration can do for them individually. He also frames the Book of Mormon in that document um, from 1851 as ancient records of the Western Hemisphere. In other words, these are these records belong to all of us. He's sort of presenting this, here are your records, here are your people's documents. And he calls on believers to free themselves from the governments that, you know, just because you have a local government, you are still free in this gospel message. You know, it's all for you. to rec- So recognize that. And this is a message that clearly resonates with a lot of Native peoples, particularly in Hawaii, where there's a lot of success in the 1850s in sort of gaining recruits to the church. Uh, later on in New Zealand, in the, by the 1890s, when a large portion of the Maori population joins the church. This is the kind of message they're hearing and taking in. Louisa Pratt, um, Addison's wife, in 1851 reports, she's at a meeting uh, in French Polynesia, and reports speaking to a female meeting about the origins of the Book of Mormon. And one of the natives, as she puts it, asks her if the ancient Nephites were Europeans. She then tells them, 
No, they are the ancient fathers of the Tahitians. At this, they appeared greatly interested and wished to learn more about the book. So for them, this is, oh, okay, well, now we're talking, now we're talking, you know, we're talking about our story uh, and sort of bringing, bringing the Book of Mormon into that context. So that's sort of, sort of the background um, for Pratt's document and gives you a sense of how this specific world among Mormons is beginning to take shape. California is a, a part of it. I keep bringing it back to California. California is a part of this specific world, again, because of these trade routes. There are boats coming from Hawaii all the time into California. Um, Pratt himself never really makes it. He gets down to Chile for a short visit, but really never makes it very far off the California coastline to uh, all the other places that he had planned to go. But this vision becomes, I think, his vision becomes a real touchstone for Mormons throughout the Pacific as the century goes along. Now, why are they successful? I, I've, I've tried um, to suggest at least some of the reasons why that that bringing in the Book of Mormon, bringing people into this story is a, very, is a deeply compelling <coughs> way to gain a sense of, of one's own religious identity. But let me just suggest a couple of other reasons, and then I want to really open it up for, for discussion. The first is a political, uh, I think a political reason, that Mormonism, um, again, this is a time when Mormons are themselves struggling and feeling persecuted rightly so, and blaming the American government. They bring that with them into the Pacific, and they bring that with them into a context where native peoples throughout the Pacific are being colonized by the French, the British, Americans, governments that are coming in and fighting over their lands, taking over, um, taking over their property. Mormons come across as the heroes in this story for a lot of native peoples, as the anti-Americans. Um, in fact, uh, um, some of the Mormon missionaries come and they, they call United States the Babylon, the sort of the, the uncivilized place. We're going to rescue you from those people. Come join us across the mountains, meaning back in Utah, and we will, we will join together and save ourselves from, from the United States. So they're, they're again putting themselves on sort of politically on the same level with these folks to say, you know, we're in this together. We've, we've exper we know what persecution is like. We've experienced this too. We can help you. We can band together and help one another. So the shared sense of oppression, I think, breeds, for some people at least, friendship, community, and a way to bring people into Mormonism. So that's sort of the, pol the, the geopolitics piece of it. The religious reasons, though, I think are also really interesting, and I, I, do, I don't want to spend too much time on them, but um, one um, was raised, we, I talked about the fact that these, that Protestants are trained ministers. They are educated, they are credentialed. Um, Mormons, as you, as you all know, were sent out, sometimes at the age of 20, you know, young, young people just sent out to go preach the gospel. And I think that that lack of sort of the class of a trained ministry actually worked in their favor in a lot of cases among native peoples because it meant that on the one hand the ministers the, sort of the Protestant ministers would expect a certain kind of educational process for converts you know if you wanted to join the church you had to learn to read you had to or learn the catechism depending on what tradition you were in 
And the, the Protestant missionaries also, as I also said previously, sort of removed themselves from the lives of the people that they were missionizing. Mormons, uh, without the resources to remove themselves, uh, even if they wanted to, lived among the natives, relied on the natives for language acquisition, and very quickly could bring natives into church, and even into church leadership, um, much more quickly than was true in, in Protestant churches. So, in a sense, it, it removed some of the barriers to growing membership in these bodies. It wasn't always easy, but it was a lot easier than it was for Protestants. So if you're a Native person and you're trying to choose, you know, I mean, a lot of them just said, I don't want to join any church, but if you wanted to join a church and you were choosing among churches to join, you could see that the Mormon church would be a place where you could attain a certain level of leadership much more quickly without jumping through some of the hoops that you might have had to jump through for the Protestants. Third, early Mormons, uh, meaning, you know, this, so now we're in the mid, so mid-19th century, also had a whole set of, as you know, a whole set of religious practices, healing, anointing, um, believing in dreams and visions and revelations that meshed more easily with native traditions. Protestants did not did not want to hear anything about dreams and visions. And I think that people that study um, missions often talk about bridging practices, practices that are common to two different traditions that can sort of provide a bridge for someone who is converting from one sort of worldview to another. If you share the practice, you can reinterpret that practice, but you can still practice the same kinds of things. And I think Mormonism provided that in abundance for at least some native peoples. Um, that because they didn't have books, remember they didn't have sort of books to give these folks, there was a lot that was transmitted orally. There are stories of missionaries um, who um, spent a lot of time um, singing, praying out loud, um, and uh, sort of tr- relating the tradition in ways that were not reliant on reading and texts. Um, Louisa Pratt, again, I love Louisa Pratt. She always had lots of good things to say. She talks about her house, the the lack of privacy she had in her house as a missionary wife. And she says, the house for the first two months was nearly always thronged at night with the people talking, reading, and singing. You get this, they they were crowding around there, and the Pratts would use local feasts as a way to mark and celebrate sort of church, the the passage of, of church time. And you get the sense from them that this is what Native peoples were asking for. They were saying, "We want to, we want to sing. We want, we want to join together in these sorts of ways." And Protestants, they may have sung hymns in church, but they were mostly singing them out of hymnals and not in the same kind of way. Yeah, Joe. Lori, what about speaking in tongues? Right. My next point. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Speaking in. Well, first I'm going to talk about healing. Then, but speaking in tongues fits into this category too, because of course they're the gifts of the spirit that are are very important in early Mormon practice. Throughout early accounts, probably the most common scene related by Mormon missionaries was a healing scene. James Brown, who was a minister, a missionary who's serving in Tahiti, recounted uh, sort of over and over again his experiences anointing and healing the sick, uh, preaching on the signs, gifts of angels, etc. And it becomes a really important means, in particular, I think, um, for missionary wives to interact with Native women is through these 
healings. Louisa Pratt was always, as she said, in constant demand to bring along her consecrated oil to help in healings. She, and she, she, she has, there's a great, another great quote, the females had great faith in the oil, she observed, and they would you know, repay her with gifts. But um, did, did they bring the priesthood member, the male, with them to anoint, or did no, no, no. no. Sorry, yeah, I wasn't going to get into that part. Of it. Yeah, no, no. These were again. This is improvisation, thousands of miles away from Utah. So there's no one looking over your shoulder saying they, they were doing the same thing in Utah. Yeah, yeah. That, that's, at that point, they were right. Yes, yes. No, she was all on her own. George Cannon also uh, remarked he was surprised that the local people he encountered in Hawaii already believed in the laying on of hands for the sick. So this is a practice that was already going on, but the Mormons were able to, to help reinterpret the practice for Native people. So he, he says, It was not contrary to their traditions for them to believe in this ordinance, for their old Native priests before the missionaries came had considerable power which they exercised and in which the people had confidence. So Mormons were able, again, to take this bridging practice and translate it into a Mormon idiom. And, yes, speaking in tongues, continuous revelation are also critical. Protestant missionaries absolutely clamped down on this stuff. <laughs> they just said, I, uh, there's uh, one Methodist missionary in Tonga who got really uh, frustrated because he talked about um, how the natives always wanted more mystical and visionary accounts of religious experience, and he said, "Sorry, you're not going to you're not going to get it from me." Whereas um, Mormonism lent itself more to it, the, the acceptance and the encouragement of those kinds of manifestations of the spirit. So I think, in short, Mormons Mormon missionaries look more powerful in traditional ways to people. Uh, so bringing their own traditions to that encounter and they're able to make common use of religious practices and to reinterpret them or to help people learn to reinter reinterpret them. I'm tempted to stop there. I don't even know how long I've been talking more, so I, mean, I could talk longer, but I'm... Well, whatever. I mean, you're not, you're not running short of time, but... I'm uh, not? We okay, well, let, let, let me just say one more thing and then, then I'll okay. stop. And that is just to sort of to bring this back full circle... To, to point out that not only does, I've, I've been talking about the, the margins and talking about sort of the effects that more missionaries have in the Pacific, but I think one thing that hasn't been um, explored enough, and there's probably lots of room for more scholarship on this, is the ways in which the Pacific world also comes back to Utah in a variety of forms um, because of these early encounters from visiting um, Asian dignitaries to entire island communities that move to Utah. Um, new Mormons do gather to Zion. It's hard. It's hard to do. Most don't, aren't able, obviously, to pick up and leave and come to Utah. But there are small communities of, of um, Pacific Island people. And by the late 19th century, you see some pretty significant communities, of, certainly of Asians uh, and Chinese and other Asians, who come eastward and begin to settle um, in Utah, as they are in other areas of, of the U.S. West. The and a lot, of, a lot of Mormon islanders settle in California because it's, it's, it's closer. It's I closer, guess. right. They and can stop there. Because I remember, <laughs> you know, in the 50s when I was a teenager, we would always have the Polynesians come over, the Samoans, whoever, 
and, and do the luau's. You know, yeah. and it was like an annual thing, and I think we all have experienced that. Yeah, had that's a great luau, uh, and it was yeah. just kind of an interesting cultural tradition that probably not a lot of other churches had experienced. Right, and right. California that's is a lot more temperate than Utah. Yes. That's true. Yeah, I would have stopped here too. <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah. They also beat us in volleyball and everything. Understand Polynesian families how they migrate. They migrate to their families. So if your family comes to California, mm. that's where you come. Mm. If your mm -hmm. family goes to Utah or Missouri, that's where you go. Interesting. Yeah. I guess that, that, and I'll leave, sort of leave it, I mean, you all have, I'm sure, plenty to say, but what sort of the questions that this raises for me, and this is sort of the question that I left in the, when I gave that Tanner lecture all those years ago, was what does it mean, um, what does it mean for the church today to have this as, as a sort of major part of its tradition, and are there ways that the church as a whole is changed by this encounter. Not just how are missionary, how are more missionaries changing Pacific Island peoples, but how has this affected and shaped the way the church itself as a whole works? And I think that's still getting worked out, and, and there are probably some tensions around that question. But how, um, and this is sort of the question that always interests me, is how, how are, how is a tradition indigenized? How does it become part of the Maori culture or Hawaiian culture, and how does that change the church as a whole, or does it? Does it is I mean in this day age of correlation where there is an attempt at least at one level to sort of standardize curriculum and to present Mormonism as a universal faith that is the same from place to place? Is there room for sort of those luau's? Is there room? Is that part of is that part of Mormonism? Well, we can say sense. this, if it weren't for the Samoans and Tongans, BYU football would not well, be yeah. as good as it is. So that has shaped the church, yeah. at least. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, yes. You, you kinda, I'd like two questions to yeah. respond to that. Um, was this, and was this viewed as a very early, if you will, multicultural, the first multicultural experience they had? I mean, they had mm. Wouldn't accept the southerners. The southern, right. southerners wouldn't accept, accept them, and they were kind of a different right. culture. But but they had to deal with the fact that there were people in New Zealand and, and Hawaii who were not like them, who then became legitimate part of the church. And, and did that help sensitize the church to growth early on? Well, the, I mean, the, we had the Indians, but that never kind of worked. Right. And mm -hmm. did it? And the question: Did it, it worked in the South Pacific? Did it work? In part because it was so far away, yeah, right? Still isolated. <laughs> yeah, it yeah. That, there, that it still gave some freedom. Again, it sort of gave freedom for people there to adapt practices in various ways that they could sort of reconcile with whatever traditions they were bringing to that experience. But right. that—that's yeah. But at least the church leadership had to figure out that it wasn't just a white only. Yeah. Yeah, and they had to deal with this. My second question is, of course. Um, polygamy. Yeah. How did, how did that? How did that play out in the South Pacific? Because you know, in England they bring the wives back, but, but did the missionaries get into that? Um, no. I, I mean, the, because the time. I mean, the, the time at which that would have really been blowing up was the 1850s, and the mission missionaries got called back 
from Hawaii. I mean, it was, it was sort of like everyone, you know, all hands on deck. That was come, everywhere. Come back, yeah, right. Right, come back to Utah. Um, and it didn't, I, I didn't find much evidence of, I mean, people, there are a few missionaries who said, well, so-and-so asked me about this practice, and I explained that, yes, we practice plural marriage. But I don't see, I haven't found a whole lot of evidence of that affecting missionary relationships. By the time the Maori come on, that's 1890s, so we're already sort of past well, the, that. Yeah, but the islanders point. don't practice that. They don't have plural wives. It's not a practice at all. It's not a practice, but then you have liaisons in royal, you know, the royals of Samoan, the royals of Tonga, where they would have you know, the, like the nobles from Tonga, a daughter would marry a noble from Samoa mm-hmm. to solidify that relationship and strengthen the family. So, mm-hmm. multiple wives, yeah, mm-hmm. in the nobles, but not in right. the general population. Yeah, yeah. I just, I had, I didn't see that come so up, coming up as an issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I wonder about missionary couples. You've talked mm-hmm. a lot about Addison and Louisa Pratt. Right. By the way, I understand that. Right. He's buried here in Orange County. Paul might know more about that. I understand he, he found his tombstone up in the, one of the Anaheim cemeteries. Anaheim cemetery. He, oh. I think, was one of the very <laughs> first missionaries to go out. Did he yes. take his wife with him, or did she come later? Um, she came a little bit later, but not... But mo- in Hawaii, Michener has couples going. Mostly yeah. Mostly it's single men. single missionaries. If there's a married man and he has a family, he goes alone, and the family stays behind. But how was that in the South? It's it's mostly single missionaries, but there are some wives that go, there are a few wives that go along. It does happen, you know. I I've been researching my great grandfather who was a missionary in Australia, and this was in the first decade of the twentieth century. But I it, I got a list of all the missionaries that went there in the in the two and a half years that he was there, and I was very surprised to see a young man who went out as a missionary and he was about 23 years old and a year later his wife joined him I didn't even, when I was doing this at first I didn't realize he would even be married but yes he was and his wife came out and she was listed as a missionary now I'm not sure how that worked but uh, they, kids? They, they did well they didn't at the time they went out but by the time they went back she was pregnant so yeah. Yeah, it did happen. It did happen. My great great grandparents went together on a mission in 1868 to England, and she was a missionary with him. Mm-hmm. So they were a missionary couple. Right. There weren't. I mean, you know, mission missionary practices weren't really standardized exactly. until yeah. the 1920s. So, um, yeah, it, it's it, there was a lot of variation at that point. What yeah. uh, did you find about uh, single missionaries going native? And well, the, the, having, yeah, the, I have this one great this one great story of uh, Brother Royard <laughs> or someone in, in French Polynesia who went did go native and married. A Polynesian woman. Um, did, he, did he take her back to Utah? Did I don't think so. I think there? he, st- as far as I know, he stayed there. But I only have Louisa Pratt's word on this, and she didn't stay there for all that much longer. So I don't. Was he single when he went out, or mm-hmm. was this he, yes. to him a plural wife? No. 
No, he was single. He was single. He was, he was companion to Addison Pratt. Yes. And they yes. went to Tubawai. Right. Right. And then Eliza Pratt, had they not just arrived in Nauvoo, she hadn't, they had not even built their home or made their home. And the prophet and he got the call. When he came back from Tubai, she had already. He came back to Salt Lake, where they had gone from Nauvoo, and then he went back down. Pratt did. Are you yes. Pratt now? And then mm -hmm. she followed with her sister and her husband and their families as missionaries. Right. Right. Yeah. It was this uh, this other fellow that she talks about, I, Griard. I think I this is his name. I read in your book that was was not Gruard part of the the group that settled in San Bernardino. Is that what eventually? I mean, it's been a while since yeah. I. It, it could be that that's what I said. But yeah. I don't really know the details. Of yeah. His wife. I knew he had a native wife, but yes. I didn't know if she came back to San Bernardino. I would assume that she did because I mean I. It. That was from 1851 to 1857. Before 1851, they were in San, Mormons were not in San Bernardino. And then in 1857, mm -hmm. they went back to Utah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, I don't know if he stayed in Tubuai until then. I mean, you might. Just learning about that. Yeah, I know it's a, it's a, I, it's a sketchy story from you know various missionary accounts that I've pieced together. And um, and today, as far as I understand, uh, there are no countries in the world with a greater percentage of Mormons than Samoa and Tonga, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, in fact, I, uh, the Pew study showed that the only country in the whole world that has a majority of Mormons right. is Tonga. Yes. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, it's from it's remarkable, and it's a yeah. Carrie, I really like your analysis that Mormons in that setting actually have an advantage over the Protestants, mm -hmm. and it may be that the acceptance of of uh, polygamous relationships. I mean, even if they don't never mention it, but they're not going to they're harass not. people about it the way uh, right. the Protestants were in Africa. Right. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I don't know. I just don't. I have seen so little mention of it. But yeah. Uh, did Did Joseph or even Brigham Young have, have kind of a sense of the size of the, the Pacific Basin? I mean, they sent these people out, yeah. you know, and. Yeah. It, I mean, they've never even seen the ocean, you know. Right. And, and yeah, only because they get reports back of how long it took to get from one yeah. place to the next. I mean, and, and that was pretty well known. I mean, there were whaling okay. industries so was, and things that, was that would pretty well yeah. Known in that, that yeah. By the 19th century, they knew how big the Pacific was <laughs> and yeah. how long it took to get around it. Um, but, but no firsthand knowledge. You're right. Well, thank you, Lori. This was. you're sharing your oh, knowledge with us. A pleasure. You've been listening to the Dialogue Journal podcast series. We'd like to thank our guests today. For more Dialogue podcasts or to comment on this one, please visit dialoguejournal.com. Thank you.